Section One of To the Last Man by Zane Gray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter One, Part One. At the end of a dry uphill ride over barren country, Jean Isbel unpacked to camp at the edge of the cedars, where a little rocky canyon, green with willow and cottonwood, promised water and grass. His animals were tired especially the pack-mule that had carried a heavy load, and with slow heave of relief they knelt and rolled in the dust. Jean experienced something of relief himself as he threw off his chaps. He had not been used to hot, dusty, glaring days on the barren lands. Stretching his long length beside a tiny rill of clear water that tinkled over the red stones, he drank thirstily. The water was cool, but it had an acrid taste, an alkali bite that he did not like. Not since he had left Oregon had he tasted clear, sweet, cold water, and he missed it just as he longed for the stately, shady forests he had loved. This wild, endless Arizona land bade fair to earn his hatred. By the time he had leisurely completed his tasks, twilight had fallen, and coyotes had begun their barking. Jean listened to the yelps and to the moan of the cool wind in the cedars with a sense of satisfaction that these lonely sounds were familiar. The cedar wood burned into a pretty fire, and the smell of its smoke was newly pleasant. "'Reckon maybe I'll learn to like Arizona,' he mused half aloud. "'But I've a hankering for waterfalls and dark green forests. Must be the Indian in me.' Anyway, Dad needs me bad, and I reckon I'm here for keeps. Jean threw some cedar branches on the fire, in the light of which he opened his father's letter, hoping by repeated readings to grasp more of its strange portent. It had been two months in reaching him, coming by traveler, by stage and train, and then by boat, and finally by stage again. Written in lead pencil, on a leaf torn from an old ledger, it would have been hard to read, even if the writing had been more legible. Dad's writing was always bad, but I never saw it so shaky, said Jean, thinking aloud. Grass Valley, Arizona. Son, Jean, come home. Here is your home, and here you are needed. When we left Oregon, we all reckoned you would not be long behind. But it's years now, and I'm growing old, son, and you was always my steadiest boy. Not that you ever was so damn steady. Only your wildness seemed more for the woods. You take after mother, and your brothers, Bill and Guy, take after me. That is the red and white of it. You're part Indian, Jean, and that Indian I reckon I'm going to need bad. I'm rich in cattle and horses and my range here is the best I ever seen. Lately, we have been losing stock, but that is not all, nor so bad. Sheepmen had moved into the Tonto and are grazing down on Grass Valley. Cattlemen and sheepmen can never bide in this country. We have bad times ahead. Reckon I'll have more reason to worry and need you, but you must wait to hear that by word of mouth. Whatever you're doing, chuck it and rustle for Grass Valley, so to make here by spring. I am asking you to take pains to pack in some guns, 
and a lot of shells, and hide them in your outfit. If you meet anyone when you are coming down into the Tonto, listen more than you talk. And last, son, don't let anything keep you in Oregon. Reckon you have a sweetheart, and if so, fetch her along. With love, from your dad. Gaston Isbel Jean pondered over this letter. Judged by memory of his father, who had always been self-sufficient, it had been a surprise and somewhat of a shock. Weeks of travel and reflection had not helped him to grasp the meaning between the lines. Yes, Dad's growing old, mused Jean, feeling a warmth and a sadness stir in him. He must be way over sixty, but he never looked old, so he's rich now and losing stock and going to be sheeped off his range. Dad could stand a lot of rustling, but not much from sheepmen. The softness that stirred in Jean merged into a cold, thoughtful earnestness, which had followed every perusal of his father's letter. A dark, full current seemed flowing in his veins, and at times he felt its swell and heat. It troubled him, making him conscious of a deeper, stronger self opposed to his careless, free, and dreamy nature. No ties had bound him in Oregon except love for the great still forests and the thundering rivers, and this love came from his softer side. It had cost him a wrench to leave, and all the way by ship and down the coast to San Diego and across the Sierra Madres by stage, and so on to this last overland travel by horseback, he had felt a retreating of the self that was tranquil and happy, and a dominating of this unknown somber self with its menacing possibilities. Yet despite a nameless regret and a loyalty to Oregon, when he lay in his blankets he had to confess a keen interest in his adventurous future, a keen enjoyment of this stark, wild Arizona. It appeared to be a different sky stretching in dark, star-spangled dome over him. Closer, vaster, bluer, the strong fragrance of sage and cedar floated over him with the campfire smoke, and all seemed drowsily to subdue his thoughts. At dawn he rolled out of his blankets, and pulling on his boots, began the day with a zest for the work that must bring closer his calling future. White crackling frost and cold, nipping air were the same keen spurs to action that he had known in the uplands of Oregon yet they were not wholly the same. He sensed an exhilaration similar to the effect of a strong, sweet wine. His horse and mule had fared well during the night, having been much refreshed by the grass and water of the little canyon. Jean mounted and rode into the cedars with gladness that at last he had put the endless leagues of barren land behind him. The trail he followed appeared to be seldom traveled. It led accordingly to the meager information obtainable at the last settlement, directly to what was called the Rim, and from there Grass Valley could be seen down in the basin. The ascent of the ground was so gradual that only in long open stretches could it be seen. But the nature of the vegetation showed Joan how he was climbing. Scant, low, scraggly cedars gave place to more numerous, darker, greener, bushier ones, and these two high, full-foiled, 
green-berried trees. Sage and grass in the open flats grew more luxuriously. Then came the pinions, and presently, among them, the checkered-barked junipers. Jean hailed the first pine tree with a hearty slap on the brown, rugged bark. It was a small dwarf pine, struggling to live. The next one was larger, and after that came several, and beyond them, pines stood up everywhere above the lower trees. Odor of pine needles mingled with the other dry smells that made the wind pleasant to Jean. In an hour from the first line of pines, he had ridden beyond the cedars and pinions into a slowly thickening and deepening forest. Underbrush appeared scarce, except in ravines, and the ground in open patches held a bleached grass. Jean's eyes roved for sight of squirrels, birds, deer, or any moving creature. It appeared to be a dry, uninhabited forest. About midday, Jean halted at a pond of surface water, evidently melted snow, and gave his animals a drink. He saw a few old deer tracks in the mud, and several huge bird tracks new to him, which he concluded must have been made by wild turkeys. The trail divided at this pond. Jean had no idea which branch he ought to take. Reckon it doesn't matter, he muttered, as he was about to remount. His horse was standing with ears up, looking back along the trail. Then Jean heard a clip-clop of trotting hoofs, and presently espied a horseman. Jean made a pretense of tightening his saddle girths while he peered over his horse at the approaching rider. All men in this country were going to be of exceeding interest to Jean Isbel. This man at a distance rode and looked like all Arizonians. Jean had seen. He had a superb seat in the saddle, and he was long and lean. He wore a huge black sombrero and a soiled red scarf. His vest was open, and he was without a coat. The rider came trotting up and halted several paces from Jean. "'Hello, stranger,' he said gruffly. "'Howdy yourself,' replied Jean. He felt an instinctive importance in the meeting with the man. Never had sharper eyes flashed over Jean and his outfit. He had a dust-colored, sunburned face, long, lean, and hard, a huge, sandy mustache that hid his mouth, and eyes of piercing light intensity. Not very much hard Western experience had passed by this man. Yet he was not old, measured by years. When he dismounted, Jean saw he was tall, even for an Arizonian. Senior tracks back a ways, he said, as he slipped the bit to let his horse drink. Where bound? Reckon I'm lost, all right, replies Jean. New country for me. Sure, I seen that from your tracks and your last camp. Well, where was you headed before you got lost? The query was deliberately cool with a dry, crisp ring. Jean felt the lack of friendliness or kindness in it. Grass Valley. My name's Isbel, he replied shortly. The rider attended to his drinking horse and presently rebridled him. Then, with long swing of leg, he appeared to step into the saddle. Sure I knowed you was Jean Isbel, he said, 
Everybody in the Tonto has heard old Gas Isbel sent for his boy. Well, then why did you ask? inquired John, bluntly. Reckon I wanted to see what you'd say. So? All right. But I'm not caring very much for what you say. Their glances locked steadily, then, and each measured the other by the intangible conflict of spirit. Sure, that's natural, replied the rider. His speech was slow, and the motions of his long brown hands, as he took a cigarette from his vest, kept time with his words. But seeing you're one of the Isbels, I'll have my say whether you want it or not. My name's Coulter, and I'm one of the sheepmen Gas Isbels riled with. Coulter, glad to meet you, replied Jean, and I reckon who riled my father is going to rile me. Sure, if that wasn't so, you'd not be an Isbel, returned Coulter with a grim little laugh. It's easy to see you ain't running into any Tonto Basin fellows yet. Well, I'm going to tell you that your old man gabbed like a woman down at Greaves' store, bragged about you and how you could fight and how you could shoot and how you could track a horse or a man, bragged how you'd chase every sheep herder back up on the rim. I'm telling you because we want you to get our stand straight. We're going to run sheep down in Grass Valley. Uh-huh. Well, who's we? queried Jean curtly. We at? We, I mean, the sheepmen ranging this rim from Black Butte to the Apache country. Coulter, I'm a stranger in Arizona, said Jean slowly. I know little about ranchers or sheepmen. It's true my father sent for me. It's true, I dare say, that he bragged, for he was given to bluster and blow and he's old now. I can't help it if he bragged about me. But if he has, and if he's justified in his stand against you sheepmen, I'm going to do my best to live up to his brag. I get your hunch. Sure we understand each other, and that's a powerful help. You take my hunch to your old man, replied Coulter, as he turned his horse away toward the left. That trail leading south is yours. When you come to the rim, You'll see a bare spot down in the basin. That'll be Grass Valley. He rode away, out of sight, into the woods. Jean leaned against his horse and pondered. It seemed difficult to be just to this Coulter, not because of his claims, but because of a subtle hostility that emanated from him. Coulter had the hard face, the mask intent, the turn of speech that Jean had come to associate with dishonest men. Even if Jean had not been prejudiced, if he had known nothing of his father's troubles with these sheepmen, and if Coulter had met him only to exchange glances and greetings, still Jean would never have had a favorable impression. Coulter, grated upon him, roused an antagonism seldom felt. Hi-ho, sighed the young man. Goodbye to hunting and fishing. Dad's given me a man's job. With that, he mounted his horse and started the pack mule in the right-hand trail. Walking and trotting, he traveled all afternoon, toward sunset, getting into heavy forest of pine. More than one snowbank showed white through the green, sheltered on the north slopes of shady ravines, and it was upon entering this zone of richer, deeper forest land 
that Jean sloughed off his gloomy forebodings. These stately pines were not the giant firs of Oregon, but any lover of the woods could be happy under them. Higher still he climbed, until the forest spread before and around him like a level park, with thicketed ravines here and there on each side. And presently that deceitful level led to a higher bench upon which the pines towered and were matched by beautiful trees he took for spruce. Heavily barked, with regular spreading branches, these conifers rose in symmetrical shape to spear the sky with silver plumes. A graceful gray-green moss waved like veils from the branches. The air was not so dry, and it was cooler, with a scent and touch of snow. Jean made his camp at the first likely site, taking the precaution to unroll his bed some little distance from his fire. Under the softly moaning pines he felt comfortable, having lost the sense of an immeasurable open space falling away from all around him. The gobbling of wild turkeys awakened Jean. Chug-a-lug, 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 chug. There was not a great difference between the gobble of a wild turkey and that of a tame one. Jean got up and, taking his rifle, went out into the gray obscurity of dawn to try to locate the turkeys. But it was too dark and finally when daylight came, they appeared to be gone. The mule had strayed, and, what with finding it and cooking breakfast and packing, Jean did not make a very early start. On this last lap of his journey, he had slowed down. He was weary of hurrying. The change from weeks in the glaring sun and dust-laden wind to this sweet, cool, darkly green and brown forest was very welcome. He wanted to linger along the shaded trail. This day, he made sure, would see him reach the rim. By and by, he lost the trail. It had just worn out from lack of use. Every now and then, Jean would cross an old trail, and as he penetrated deeper into the forest, every damp or dusky spot showed tracks of turkey, deer, and bear. The amount of bear sign surprised him. Presently his keen nostrils were assailed by the smell of sheep, and soon he rode into a broad sheep trail. From the tracks, Jean calculated that the sheep had passed there the day before. An unreasonable antipathy seemed born in him. To be sure, he had been prepared to dislike sheep, and that was why he was unreasonable. But on the other hand, this band of sheep had left a broad, bare swath weedless, grassless, flowerless, in their wake. Where sheep grazed, they destroyed. That was what Jean had against them. An hour later he rode to the crest of a long park-like slope, where new green grass was sprouting and flowers peeped everywhere. The pines appeared far apart. Gnarled oak trees showed rugged and gray against the green wall of woods. A white strip of snow gleamed like a moving stream away down in the woods. Jean heard the musical tinkle of bells and the baa-baa of sheep and the faint sweet bleating of lambs. As he rode toward these sounds, a dog ran out from an oak thicket and barked at him. Next Jean smelled a campfire, and soon he caught sight 
of a curling blue column of smoke, and then a small peaked tent. Beyond the clump of oaks, Jean encountered a Mexican lad carrying a carbine. The boy had a swarthy, pleasant face, and to Jean's greeting he replied, Buenos dias. Jean understood little Spanish, and about all he gathered by his simple queries was that the lad was not alone, and that it was lambing time. This latter circumstance grew noisily manifest. The forest seemed shrilly full of incessant baas and plaintive bleats. All about the camp, on the slope, in the glades, and everywhere were sheep. A few were grazing. Many were lying down. Most of them were ewes, suckling white fleecy little lambs that staggered on their feet. Everywhere Jean saw tiny lambs, just born. Their pinpointed bleats pierced the heavier ba-ba of their mothers. End of chapter 1, part 1